Jay right in your face. Welcome back to the Fadeaway Podcast Off-Season Edition, baby. Interview number three this time. Um, man, this is going to be a crazy, crazy interview for a lot of people because, and, and we've been hiding this for a while, but I'm, I'm finally excited to share with our, our listeners who we're going to be talking to today. So, Zayd, have you ever listened to the Whistleblower Podcast? Of course I have. You know I have. Um, podcast basically surrounded around the Tim Donahue scandal, which was the NBA scandal, which included a ref who was allegedly fixing games or manipulating games um, and having... Ah, it's not alleged. He went to jail. <laughs> he went to jail for it. Yeah, we, we went to jail, <laughs> but um, went to went to jail for that, and it yeah. was allegedly backed by the mafia, which That's we will learn. One. We will That's learn, you know, in the in the interview that it may yeah. not have been, but. Yes, I was listening to that, and today we have brought on someone actually that was included in that podcast. Yes, sir. Sir goes by the name of Sean Patrick Griffin. Um, he's a best-selling author, uh, author. He also authored the book called Gaming the Game. He's a PhD holder. Yeah. He's a associate professor. The list goes on. This goes Former on. Philadelphia PD. Um, and uh, honestly, the reason why we targeted Sean is... Well, firstly, he kind of responded to our tweet, and it was out of the blue, and that was great. It was a nice little setup. But um, for those of you who are confused, Sean is actually the one who narrated all of Episode 5, Head Fakes. Mm -hmm. And he's uh, mentioned in, I believe it's Episodes 2 and 3 here and there. And he talks about the extent of his role. And Gaming the Game, the book that he wrote, is actually about the Tim Donahue case, and it is a bestseller as well. Um, So definitely check that out. And he does have a website which he talks about, um, which has access to all of his evidence. Um, but why we really wanted to talk to Sean is because Sean has spent a lot of his time researching in depth this case. And I was following his website and Zayd was following his, we- his website as well. And we saw that he was addressing a lot of the takes that the podcast was saying. And not re- I don't want to say he was debunking completely, but there were a lot of things that he wanted to provide context around. So in our heads, we're like, this dude has a story that he wants to tell. Yeah. Uh, might as well give him the platform to tell and, the story. And this type of scandal is his bread and butter. You'll hear later on in the episode that, you know, white collar crime is what he does. That's his thing. Yeah. So it was really interesting to get some insight on, you know, a whole different perspective of not only the podcast that was released, but also on the entire scandal itself. So, you know, we think of the podcast as basketball fans, as NBA fans, and we don't really have you know not you know the research we don't have the knowledge we don't have the the in-depth knowledge that that sean has so it was really interesting to see you know some insight that he provided for us that we would never know and some some insight that he provided for us that was you know not consistent with the podcast so that was really really interesting to hear so you know without further ado please enjoy this episode with sean patrick griffin Everyone, welcome our very special guest today, Mr. Sean Patrick Griffin. How are you, sir? I'm great. How are you, Fatty? I'm doing very well. Uh, Zayd and I are very happy to have you on. And um, I know for anyone who listened to the first couple of minutes, you know that uh, Sean plays a huge role in the the whole, not the whistleblower podcast per se, but the Tim Donahue case and, and all the stuff that happens around that. So we're super glad to have you on today to uh, address some of the questions that we had listening to the podcast and 
you know, knowing the case from back in the day and really just trying to get answers and, and better truth. So we really appreciate your time. Sure. Glad to help. Now, Sean, so listening to the podcast, we, we know that you're, you're, you come up in a couple of the episodes. So, you know, going into the podcast and working with Tim, what were your expectations of your role and, and the role and the information that you'd give to Tim? And what's the information that actually, you know, made it to the podcast? Well, that's a great question. Uh, I was contacted by Tim Livingston um, and his partner, Doug, and I can't pronounce Doug's last name, but um, they came across my work late in the podcast. So they had already interviewed, uh, by my understanding, most of the key players, and somehow they came across uh, Game in the Game, my book. And they contacted me. Um, they were interested I actually I can't speak for them, but at the time I was not aware of their their plan for the podcast per se or what they had already done. I just obviously as evidenced by what I'm doing on this podcast, if people right. contact, if people contact me about my research, uh, I always try and lend a helping hand. And the thing is, what most people don't know about my line of work, as crime is my main research area, and because mythology is so problematic. I can't be critical of the media for getting things wrong if I then turn down people asking of my expertise. So I generally speaking say yes. So anyway, so I accepted um, their invitation to be interviewed for the podcast. No, there were no promises. We didn't have any, you know, pre-existing conditions on what we were going to talk about. Um, I met them in Atlanta in a studio in Atlanta for a full day. It was it was amazing. We talked all day long. Wow. So what what the public heard. I don't know how many minutes, my gosh, it probably wasn't even 10 minutes, if you think about it, between the episodes uh, in which I appear. They probably, I'm not exaggerating, they probably have 8 to 10 hours of tape. Oh, wow. And so, um, yeah, and so that, you know, you guys know this, that's pretty much the rule. I'm sure that's true for everybody they interviewed. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think I explained this somewhere on my website, but the way they did it was interesting. They uh, And I certainly talked about this on the radio uh, a few months ago when they started this. The way they cut the podcast was every interview subject was miked from the time that they met you. So if you flew in, for instance, they met you at the airport, they miked you. And so the whole ride back to the hotel, the whole ride to the studio, you're on mic. They were oh, okay. looking for an opportunity, in my opinion. Again, I'm speaking for them, but I'm assuming they were just looking for a more interesting angle on a story that people had already talked about for a decade. Mm -hmm. And they thought in those informal moments they might get more context and more personality and all that sort of stuff. But so anyway, to answer your question, they have a ton of tape of me. Uh, <laughs> so that's very so interesting. That's, that's how they contacted me. They didn't make any promises, and I didn't ask for any. Yeah. Um the, 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 to answer the second part of your question, though, what I expected, I wrongly thought that this was an effort to examine things even after this 10-year period we didn't know. And I, I, I'm, I'm so used to doing this by now, and I'm not – you know, I'm not big time you, but I mean, I've done hundreds of these and yeah. it's not uncommon for me to give people files or, you know, be asked for my sources and all that sort of stuff. And, um, I thought that's what that was going to be. And it wasn't that at all. Um, they obviously had a vision for what the show was going to be like. And, um, you know, I'm sure we'll get into that, 
But yeah, for sure. Uh, but so anyway, so I was fine. They treated me very well. They were very nice. And uh, we've we've had plenty of back and forth since the podcast was published. And, you know, that, but it, it was fine. No, that's awesome. Now, Sean, earlier you had mentioned in the interview, you were saying, you know, they had reached out to me or they found my information later on in the podcast. So Zayd and I, obviously, because we are junkies, we, we do our research and we know a bunch of stuff. But for people who like a lot of people listening to this podcast are just people who like conspiracy, who like sports, yeah. don't necessarily have to be diehard NBA fans. So they don't really, you know, fully understand what it is that you your involvement is. So what exactly is your exact role in the Tim Donahue case? Because this dates back to when this was all happening in real time. Is that correct? Correct. Yes. I, I got involved in this. And by the way, for those that you'll laugh at this, given the subject of our topic and your, your podcast, I'm not an NBA fan. <laughs> and I, I had a bit of an idea. I, I, just, I had a feeling. <laughs> I, now it's funny. My son is a huge NBA fan, but I'm not, I'm not an NBA fan at all. And so when this happened in 2007, obviously I'm a sports fan, so I was aware of the story, but only on a basic level, no different than your neighbors might, you know. And um, at the time, I was promoting my last book, and in Philadelphia, it was about Philadelphia organized crime, so I was on media a lot and uh, doing book signings and things like that. And by chance, somebody who knew Jimmy Batista, the pro gambler in the NBA betting scandal, um... I came in contact with him and he was telling me about this story and he said, would you like to meet Batista? And I, 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 I mean, it, it's really funny looking back and I, my immediate reaction was not really. What do I care? Why, why, <laughs> why would I care about this? You know, we are and, and it's funny. And I said, well, we already know the story. So that, by the way, and I say that all the time when I speak to people, because for people who are listening to my interviews or who read game in the game, I was you. And what I mean by that is I thought I knew the story. Um, anyway, and so I met with Jimmy Batista, and literally within 20 minutes, I couldn't believe how stupid I was to believe the media. And um, I realized there was a the huge story that hadn't been discussed. And I'll, I'll explain this briefly to your audience. The, the main thing that people didn't realize, and unfortunately, that was 2008, by the way, and this is still true today in 2020, People don't realize that the vast majority of what they see in the media is the word of Tim Donaghy. And what I mean by that is Tim Donaghy was the only one of the co-conspirators to speak to the feds back when the investigation was going on. So his words carried the day in the documents and in the media. Yeah. Well, that meant by definition that then the news reports, whether they realized it or not, we're simply repeating what Tim Donaghy had told the FBI. That's it. And yeah. so no, no one had realized, wait a second, no one has ever talked to Tommy Martino, the mutual friend, the go-between between Tim, Tim yeah. Donaghy, the referee, and Batista, the pro gambler. Nobody has talked to Jimmy Batista, the pro gambler. Nobody has looked at the betting records. Nobody has looked at the betting lines. And, and unfortunately, this is still true today, a lot of people don't realize there were a bunch of pro gamblers in on this. So no one understood how much evidence was available that people weren't looking at. And sorry, Sean, if I could step in, I just want to know, 
Why do you think that that's the case? Why do you think that people didn't essentially care to know? Because it seems like, you know, Tim, Tim especially was one person who was ready to dish it out if anyone asked him. Like he seemed like he was, whether it was truthful or not, he was ready to talk to anyone, it seemed. But why is it that you think people aren't really diligent on finding the truth? Shoot. Well, we could do an entire podcast on that. Um, <laughs> I just, I, I listen, I'm telling you, I, I, my wife would tell you this too. I always struggle with whether the media is incompetent or if they're looking for clicks and views and audience because it's maddening how lazy they are or how incorrect they are. Because look, I always say you don't need access to Jimmy Batista or his betting records, or my confidential FBI files. Even the basics people get wrong on this case, and it drives me crazy. That's why, by the way, I'm glad you referenced my website. The reason that I put all that stuff up there, that was mainly for the media, because I was sick and tired of, of people in the media saying, well, Sean, yeah, you get to spend three years, five years writing a book. Well, we're covering all sorts of things, so we can't know what you know. And I always, I always get upset when they say that to me. Because I have two reactions. One, then don't have an opinion. Yeah. You can't on the one hand say you don't know. Well, then don't have an opinion. Then stop telling your audience that you do know. Um, and the other thing, too, is they're not doing the basic level of analysis. They're not, they're not even literally searching the Internet sometimes. And they're certainly not looking at the court, court documents, which, you, again, you don't need access to my files and access to the gamblers and all the stuff I did. So, um I, and and to, to answer the second part of the question, which is why others, Donaghy did something very shrewd. When I said that he was the only person who spoke, it's a little misleading because Tommy Martino spoke to the grand jury and he perjured himself. Well, that was a problem because by the time he corrected his statements to the FBI, even if he was telling the truth, he's not a trustworthy source. So you're left with the words of Tim Donaghy, and Batista never cooperated. And none of the other pro-gamblers, people, most, most, I guarantee most people listening to this podcast don't even know there were other people involved in this. Um, so no, and, and, and here's the thing. If you're the pro-gamblers, why, why would you ever come forward and talk about this? That's their livelihood. They don't want their names associated with this. For sure. Um, and even Batista, you know, he wasn't going to speak until he served his prison sentence. So, um, you know, so the point is the conventional wisdom that was formed in 2007 and 8 and 9, my book didn't come out until 2011. Well, by then, it's an old story and everyone thinks they know what happened. It's interesting that you say Tim's words were the words to kind of carry the case. And Tim Livingston in the, in the podcast gets Tim Donahue to speak a lot. And he makes, you know, some claims that you can say, OK, you know, that seems reasonable. That seems believable. And he makes other claims where you just kind of scratch your head and like, what? There's no chance. Man, so, for example, no chance, Tim. You know, he said, you know, Tim claims he only made thirty to forty thousand dollars off the scandal. So it seems extremely difficult to believe. And you know, I just want to get your thoughts on maybe some of the things that he said, such as a thirty to forty thousand dollar income that he made from the scandal. And what else did you find? You know, during your your time writing the book and in your research, that are things that we don't know. Well, I'll, I'll, I'm going to answer your thirty to forty thousand dollar question in a minute, but I'll, I'll answer the bigger picture of Tim Donaghy's credibility. In two thousand and nine, his book came out, and I bought it because at that time I didn't realize what he was doing. I read that book, and within however many minutes, I thought, "Oh my goodness, I can't believe this is happening." Um, 
because what he writes in this, and look, I'm going to offend some of your audience when I say this. If you read that book and within the first 30 pages or 50 pages, you don't realize it's bull, you're not reading it correctly because he talks about things he can't know. How would he possibly know what the FBI is doing and why? How would he know why the assistant U.S. attorneys are making certain decisions? How would he know why the Bureau of Prisons makes the decisions they do? Notice, I didn't even get into the scandal. I'm just talking about basics. He just made it all up. Yeah, and it's it's kind of odd that nobody even bothers to question that, though, because he's done media tours with big media companies. He's not talking to chums. And that's what, that's what I'm saying, and that's why I get so frustrated because right. I've never understood if they're just good for – if he's just good for radio and he's good for clicks because it's sensational. Because, look, here, I'll be reasonable, right? I'm an academic. You can say, all right, well, Tim Donaghy demonstrably, provably lies about these 100 things. That doesn't mean that number 101 has to be false, right? I mean, we, we, we can do that. But my point is, if you guys have already lied to me for a decade on thousands of occasions, I'm not believing a damn thing you say until I check that sucker out. Yeah, of course. That's the problem I have with the way the media treats him. I mean, you know, if he said, yeah, Fadia, he molests colleagues, do I have to believe that? I mean, at what point do, do I go, oh, wait, that's, it's Tim Donaghy. No, it's, uh, it's definitely, it's mind-blowing. And I mean, to be in your position, having done the research that you've done, I can't even imagine, you know, going crazy watching these things because it's almost like they're feeding into this fake narrative because they're trying to convince everyone of a specific story. And I mean... Whistleblower, the podcast, like brought out a light on that. Sorry, go yes, ahead, Sean. That's exactly right. And and I'll answer your question about the thirty to forty thousand dollar thing. There's a reason that he has to say he only made thirty to forty thousand dollars. For your listeners who don't know this, the way he was he was charged and pleaded guilty to fraud. Well, the way fraud is sentenced, it's on the dollar loss to the victim. So rather than admitting to fixing games over four NBA seasons and making hundreds of thousands of dollars, it was in his interest to make that number as small as possible. And that's why Martino and Batista disagree strongly with him on how much money he made. But here's the problem. If you're the FBI, you have no way of proving this. So if he's willing to plead guilty to that, you take it. Because don't forget, your listeners should know – Martino had lied to the grand jury, so they couldn't use his testimony, and Batista didn't cooperate. So you're the FBI. You're you're screwed. And, yeah. and I will say one thing. Uh, you didn't ask this, but it's related to this question. My one main criticism of the FBI was always that, okay, fine, you don't have people cooperating, but those betting lines, they're public information. They could have done exactly what I did and done an analysis on the 0607 season and say, okay, what are the betting line movements on Tim Donaghy's games versus all the other referees' games? That alone would have told them what was happening. That's why so many people were copying the bets. They, it wasn't that anyone was in on a conspiracy. They just were following the money. And so if they had done that, rather than believing Donaghy's bowl, they would have been able to present that to him and go, okay, wait, explain this, tough guy. Yeah, and and, and that sure. would change the entire dynamic of the investigation. And by the way, when I told Phil Scala that, and I'm sure we'll get to Scala later, oh, yeah. um, he actually agreed with me that that would have been very important for them to know. 
But they didn't. But just to be clear, it's not like they thought about it and turned it down. That it didn't occur to them. Yeah, for sure. And it's it's actually great that you brought up Phil because I my next question is actually directed towards him. And um, you know, one thing that I noticed that you've said on Twitter and you've been pretty open about is the misrepresentation of Scala in the podcast. So. The podcast, you know, they call them, I think they call them a, a stoic Christian yeah. or whatever the, whatever the case may be, that he's just a very, very honest individual, honorable, honorable uh, person. Yeah. yeah. And and I've seen you, you know, not debunk that, but definitely, <laughs> definitely refute it for <laughs> sure. Um, so just to give our listeners a bit of a background. So Phil Scala, obviously you've heard his name in the second last episode. He was the FBI agent that uh, Tim interviewed in what seemed to be the most busy breakfast place yeah. in whatever city <laughs> that they were located in. But uh, no, shout out, shout out to, to Tim and that, that interview it was a great interview. But, um, you know, Phil, his role was he was actually investigating a crime family at the time, the Gambino family, one of the mm-hmm. biggest crime families in the U.S., in the history of the U.S. And that I think they were looking at some wiretaps and you can correct me, Sean, but he came across conversations where Tim's name was mentioned in regards to them having referees on their payroll or they had a referee and then they ended up investigating and finding out. It was Tim Donahue, and that's sort of his affiliation to the case. But I want to hear from you. Um, firstly, what is what is your opinion? I know you've met him before, and, and you have you know an opinion that you share on your website of him. But secondly, why do you think he continues to speak up and provide commentary regarding this case when it seemed like his role, and this is something that you've mentioned as well, that his role was essentially overstated? Okay, well, let me just first say, I never met him. Uh, he was gracious with his time, and he I interviewed him over the phone multiple times okay. when he came in the game back in 2008. Um, and his role in the case, um, you got it right. He was the supervisor. He was the SSA, the supervisor, supervisory special agent of the Gambino squad in New York. You were right. They learned on the, about the scandal by mistake. Um, by the way, just to be clear, though, the mob had nothing to do with this. They happened to be copying bets just like insurance salesmen and accountants and doctors all around the world. It was they, they, It's not like they had any role in this whatsoever. Right. Um, which, by the way, which actually we're not going to get into this in the podcast, but I've written about this too. That's partly why they didn't care about this case. They were, not, they were an organized crime unit. This was trivia. This was a nuisance to them. Right. Yeah, so yeah. It wasn't organized crime and it wasn't based in New York. So these mob – Agents are having to travel two hours back and forth down to Philly to do this ridiculous investigation. Um, so anyway, um, so with regard to Phil Scali, he was great to me, um, very helpful. And w- with regard to his overstated role in the case, th- you know, Tim Donaghy's ridiculous, you know, fact-free book, read the, read the foreword to that. It's written by Phil Scala. And what he says in there, first of all, he, he literally says nothing at all about the actual book which I wish people would realize. He talks about the case, so that, that way he doesn't have to get into whether Donaghy's telling the truth or not. But, right. he, he, but he actually says that Donaghy gives him too much credit because he, didn't, he only was the supervisor of the unit that held the case. That the case agent, Jerry Har- pardon me, Paul Harris, and his colleague, Jerry Conrad, they're the ones who know the case. And unfortunately, other than me, to my knowledge, no one has ever talked to these guys. Um, and most people have never even heard their names. And so, you know, Scala, first of all, for those who don't know, he retired right when this happened. This was his last case. 
So if you look at the foreword to Donaghy's book, it lists his his new firm. Um, it worked out well for Phil. He got to promote his new work, you know, his new uh, means of living. For sure. And um, anyway, so he could speak publicly. Well, back then, none of the other guys could speak publicly because they were still employed. And one of them actually wound up getting promoted and taking Scala's spot. So, again, this is one of those examples where I am telling you most of the media are not even aware of what I just told you. That he, he, yeah, obviously he's aware of what happened in his unit, but they weren't the ones traveling down to Philly, meeting with all these guys, meeting with all the pro gamblers, know the nuances of the case, know who made what decisions and why. It's not his fault, of course, but, but people don't even realize that's what happened. Right. And it's funny because like 12 years down the road, you can essentially paint whatever picture you want if people weren't really mm. invested in it. And a lot of NBA fans, now we're not NBA fans in 2006. Like they weren't even NBA fans in 2013. So a lot of new new ears to this. Yeah, well, and the thing is, look, I don't knock Phil Scala for picking up the phone when people from the media call him. Um, and But you know, here's the thing, though. I would love to know if Conrad and Harris are even called. It, it, it would be one thing if they're called and they say, no, thank you, for whatever reason. I would be shocked if they're even. I'd be shocked if most media people are even aware of those two agents. Sean, you mentioned that the producers of the show of the Whistleblower deprive their audience of much-needed context, and that's because they keep on searching for a confirmation of specific preconceived notions or things that they assume are correct or things that they've heard. Now, can you elaborate a little bit on you know? What specific preconceived notions you believe that they're confirming or, you know, what information do you think that they're confirming that, you know, just might not exactly be true? Sure. That's a that's actually a great question. I would say I would say there are two prominent themes throughout the podcast, all I think 12 episodes, something like that, um, that are very much missing context. Um, one, which is why I really got involved in the story years ago, which is the, the role, if any, of organized crime. And the other is the idea that the NBA itself, the league, is fixing games to provide certain outcomes to enhance things like TV ratings and all that sort of stuff. With regard to the mob stuff, and I, I mean, you guys apparently have really listened to the podcast, well, they've got a soprano star doing the voiceovers. Yeah. <laughs> the, the cover image, if you look at it, the bottom of the cover image for the podcast says, quote unquote, mafia backed betting. There is no mafia backed betting. None. Zero. There was no mafia. It's all bull. It's not, it didn't happen. And, and, I, and by the way, when I saw that on the cover image, I thought that, okay, well, maybe it's not just about the Tim Donaghy scandal. Maybe they're going to talk about other gambling. Yeah, okay. That, that would be mafia backed betting. I mean, don't forget, I do that for a living. I, that's literally what I write about. So, okay, I'm reasonable. Yeah. But that's not what they were doing. They were claiming that this was mafia backbetting. Um, and the constant theme of mob, and in fact, Tim Livingston has a voiceover at one point uh, in one of the later episodes, like 8, 9, or 10 or something like that, where he's leaving Delaware County, Pennsylvania, which is you know just a regular suburb of Philly. And he says, you know, it was very boring. I was expecting to, be, to have, uh, I'm just... I'm paraphrasing. I don't remember the quote, but the quote was oh, yeah. like, you know, I was expecting sinister people lurking around corners in shadows, like waiting to break my legs. Well, why, why would you think that? Like, I mean, <laughs> it's, you know, and that's, I mean, like, I just, 
to me, I get angry because I find the story itself important and fascinating enough. I don't need the nonsense. This is why, like, I spend so much of my time as an academic because I have to be aware of what my students are reading. And I read so much literature that's fake or partly fake or whatever because people are so dying for the sensational and the grand conspiracy. Mm-hmm. And I'm always like the guy saying, uh, yeah, listen, there is no Easter Bunny. And so in this case, th- th- there was no role of organized crime at all. Um, you know, I, I, Now, look, in case you're wondering how does that even happen – this drives me crazy because I've done this. I've actually asked media people this question. Why are you even mentioning organized crime? And they pause because they don't know the answer. And the answer is because Tim Donaghy said it. It's not because the FBI said it. It's not because the U.S. attorney said it. It's because Tim Donaghy said it to cover his ass. I mean, this is not complicated. And so that, that's one thing. And the other thing is the conspiracy thing where um, – if you listen to the entire podcast, you really hear this in the later episodes where um, they argue that the NBA is dictating game outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, and for that, I mean, first of all, th- there are so many things that you could talk about with that. Um, but obviously, that's a hell of a, an argument to make. You better have a whole lot of evidence for that. And I- I'll give you an example where uh, I say that they're, lo- they're leaving out context. They, they have an interview with Scala where Scala talks about the NBA's television contract, which was, be, which was up for negotiation and, and a renewal in, 2000, yes. in 2008. Okay? The one with the suspicious timing of the, yes. of the contract. Exactly. Right. Yes. And, and so if you listen to that, that – it's actually – by the way, they actually stretch that out over two episodes. They think that's so important. And yeah. so Scala says it was suspicious. Well, look. We're all grown men here. It is suspicious. And you know what? If David Stern knew of the scandal and hid it from his TV you know, counterparts, and by the way, I don't know if you know this, they actually were interviewed about this, and they, they said to where, I forget where I saw this, but um, they said on the record, oh, yeah, no, he hid this from us, but we're okay with it. But my point is, you can say that David Stern was shrewd, unethical. You could say that TNT or whoever was having the contract would have a good case against him in court. You could say all that. But that's a totally separate matter as to whether a, a contract being negotiated. By the way, if you're going to say the contract was, was negotiated early, you know what you'd have to know? When that contract is usually negotiated. Yeah, yeah, that's another thing as well. I mean, it's not it's not even addressed. They say, well, it wasn't up for a year. Well, there are plenty of contracts that are done way before a year is over. Um, yeah, like in the NBA. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so so my, my point is, and I want to be clear, just like I am with Donaghy, he can lie about 100 things and maybe 101 is true. Yeah. Maybe the NBA was conspiring in ways we can't imagine, but they never even consider the more obvious example, which happens in business all the time, which is David Stern realized this is a problem. And I'd rather if, if we're in negotiations, I'd rather get that sucker tied up because who knows 
what the exposure to us is going to be. Yeah, yeah, and I and I honestly think from from my understanding and Zade, you can chime in on this too. But I felt that the way Tim was portraying it was almost just the outline, the fact that David Stern really did know that this was a problem. It was yeah. not like he was you know just scoffing over it. And it was nothing like he. I think he really wanted to outline to people that this is real. Like this was a real concern to the NBA to David Stern, and he was very very serious about it. Because to that point, you're right. It is definitely shady and it's shady stuff, but. We all here are, I mean, not all of us, but most of us here are aware of when your business is about to face some backlash, like you want to step in and protect the nose yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You want to get ahead of the curve, like I said, and kind of like, just like you said, Sean, just cover your ass before anything, you know, you know, goes downhill. So, you know, Tim, do it. He, he did a good job of highlighting that. There are some things, like you said, that are missing in that, you know. Well, it, it, if, you, if you remember that episode, he also talks to Scala and he makes a big deal about the NBA uh, David Stern offering Scala a job with the NBA. Right. Well, here again, you can look at that crazy conspiratorially, or you looking, or you uh, now look. My background is white collar crime and organized crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe people are not aware of this. Agencies and private businesses hire people like Phil Scala all the time. Right. And so, if you're in a meeting with somebody, you learn, oh my, oh he's retiring. Oh my gosh, well, he's got expertise in an area that we're obviously lacking. I mean, again, I'm not being unreasonable. Maybe it was untoward, but it's never even humored that, you know what, this shit happens all the time. This depends how you spin it sometimes and how you portray it. And that's exactly like what you said. And listen, I'll give you another example of that interview. And I guarantee you, nobody caught this. If you go back and listen to that Phil Scala part of the podcast, Phil Scala is talking about Tim Donaghy and he says, we didn't believe he lied to us up until he went to jail. And then they cut it off. They don't ask one. I, I can, I listen, I didn't call Tim Livingston to ask him, but <laughs> I, I would bet you money that Phil Scala continues after they cut that off to explain all the craziness that Donaghy has done after prison because they've had a falling out. Scala has come out and told, talked about all the things that Donaghy said, which are not true. All that stuff. But that, but again, that wouldn't help because they needed Donaghy to be credible for the podcast. So they weren't going to air Phil Scala just tearing them to shreds. Well, to that point, though, I felt like he did kind of mention the fact that the, because they did ask Scala about it. And he said, he goes, you know, I'm going to ride for this guy or I'm going to I'm going to protect my witness until he lies to me or does me dirty. Yeah. And so there was kind of that. I mean, it wasn't as explicit as him saying, hey, I, me and Tim had a falling out because X, Y, Z. But for someone like myself and, and probably Zayd as well listening to this, it's OK. You can make the conclusion that it sounds like, you know, Tim fabricated a lot of information, which Tim Livingston did outline as well in the first couple episodes. Mm-hmm. The fact that, you know, he likes to, to, to make himself look a little bit better. And yeah. I think Tommy Martino as well, his best friend, mentioned the exact same thing. So this seems to be like a trend a trend with him but sean i want to ask you something about your book uh gaming the game so to our listeners who don't know sean is a best-selling author and he wrote a couple of books but this one is uh gaming the game and this was uh, surrounding the whole tim donaghy scandal the betting uh with uh, bob abatista and, and tommy martino as well now given the nature of the beast and i and by beast i mean the nba because for everyone who's listening now i think you have a much better understanding over how powerful the nba is in terms of their money their ownership everything that they control um, did you feel like when you were curating information for your book that people were hesitant to join you or speak to you out of fear 
that uh, the NBA or people of power might come after them? No, I actually, I never even thought about that, actually. <laughs> I, had, I, I only ask because it had me thinking because Tim Livingston was on, um, on uh, what's his name? It was on ESPN with the Lebertard show. And, uh, and he talks about there's a certain level of fear putting out the story because you don't really know the reaction you're going to get. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if you speaking to these people and, and, you know, squeezing all these secrets out of them, did they fear anything like that? No, I never, no, I did I, I can't speak for Tim. If he felt that, I don't know why. I mean, I, I guess, I mean, look, I write about organized crime for a living and I have legitimate fears. Um, not, not, not just some corporate Titan coming out. <laughs> um, but anyway, no, like, but obviously I had FBI agents cause at the time that case was active. So they had to be careful about what they shared with me. Um, so they were fearful, but not in the way you're thinking. Same thing with the U S attorney's office. Um, all the pro gamblers I was dealing with, obviously, um, they, that's their livelihood. I, they could get arrested um, based on what they tell me or share me share with me. So, um, yeah, I didn't. I, I never. But by the way, I, I, I don't, that's just not me anyway. I don't care. I write. That's, I write about this. For, <laughs> don't forget too. If I because I write about organized crime, I write about politicians all the time. And generally speaking, if I've got a problem with like private investigators searching for me or coming to my house or whatever that's because of politicians it's not because of you know the nba or something like that he's got you've got you got way bigger people after you if, if anything <laughs> yeah, this, yeah this is the the, yeah, the nba by the way the nba was smart um i i write about this in game in a game i tried interviewing the nba officials multiple times and they turned me down i tried interviewing uh the two head people at the um NBRA, the National Basketball Referees Association, they would not agree to meet with me. It was crazy. Um, they just wanted it to go away. And it was funny because I also interviewed sportsbook managers offshore and in Vegas. Yeah, They were some of the more dicey characters because they, they were pretty much aware of what had happened too, but they couldn't admit it. So there was a lot of dancing going on during those uh, conversations. But anyway, so I didn't have the I, I had people who were fearful of talking to me, but I never feared anybody. Now you bring up you know the NBA officials, and I just want to get your opinion on what do you really believe happened? You know, was do you think that Tim was scapegoated? Do you think that this is something that that that, that Tim was the odd man out, or do you think that this is actually maybe something real and that you know NBA officials are to some extent, you know, fixing games or playing with the outcome of games and that there's actually an epidemic. Manipulating. And then there's actually an epidemic amongst NBA officials. Because as an NBA fan, first of all, hearing that is like one of the most worrying things to hear. And we're also both officials. We're also, yeah, we're actually both officials as well at a much lower level. But also as Toronto Raptors fans, we kind of have an inherent feeling that, you know, we say, we, we, we literally say, they don't want us to win, so the refs make calls. And we're like, "Oh, that's like a that's a that's a bullcrap call." They don't want us to win, so we actually inherently somehow believe that the game is a bit manipulated. What are your thoughts on that? Well, <laughs> uh, I have a lot of thoughts on that, but I'll I'll, I'll I'll do the academic version first, and then the uh, the the sports fan version. Um, I can only tell you that I've spent I spent three no joke long years putting game in the game together, looked into everything I could. Um, interviewed everybody I could, got files that nobody's ever seen, and there was no evidence of any other official fixing games other than Tim Donaghy. Wow. And as I always tell people, 
look, if for no other reason than book sales or fascination or whatever, it would have been great if I found other people fixing games. Um, and it just, it just it, it didn't happen. And by the way, the, don't forget, too, those pro gamblers, they would love to make more millions on other games if they could. But the only bets were on Tim Donaghy's games. Um, so as to whether your team gets screwed or my Philadelphia 76ers get screwed, um, you know, I, here's the thing. Even if let, – let's assume that certain officials have certain biases, by the way, because they do. They do. Here's what people need to understand. Professional gamblers know that. The people who have computer teams, computer models, who are literally tracking the relationships between players and yeah. officials, that's all being documented and has been for at least 10 years in computer algorithms that you and I will never see. So it, it, it's – but that's not the NBA telling Sean Griffin to make sure that the Lakers win tonight, which is what the podcast is arguing. That's the problem. It's, yeah. it's Look, my kids were both really, really active in competitive sports. And at, at a certain level, when you start getting past middle school into high school and you're traveling around the country – Trust me, we were all petrified of certain officials because they called games certain ways and they absolutely had biases. Yeah. But that didn't mean that the league was telling them to do that. Yeah. Fair enough. Absolutely. And it's kind of funny you bring that up, Sean, because I feel as though, and, and I'm going to be completely honest, I didn't do the extent of research that either yourself or Tim Livingston did on this case. So obviously we're conceding to you being more knowledgeable, but just listening to the podcast, most of the claims that Tim was making are, they're hard to argue against. You know, like the whole thing about the NBA wanting teams to win. All right. Well, if you actually just take a step back and think about it from a business standpoint, I get it. Like it makes sense yeah. because this is a business and businesses need to thrive. And when David Stern came in, the league was in terrible financial shape and now they're global and Adam Silver just took it to the next level, but they did a great job building that business and to build the business you have to make these kinds of decisions so for him to make a claim like that whether it's true or not as a fan you almost just agree yeah okay that sounds true enough mm -hmm. you know it sounds accurate enough so it's 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 kind of easy to believe all this stuff i feel yeah but but then look at it this way let's say that's true and let's say like like i am like a sixers fan or especially my son mm -hmm. well it, or better still let's say you're a Sixers season ticket holder or you're uh, a corporate shareholder, you'd have a huge lawsuit if that was true. Yeah. I mean, never mind the criminality, <laughs> but even if it was just civil litigation, you, I mean, it, it, it's it's ludicrous on its face. Yeah. It's like what your point earlier, it's like if you don't know something, then stop pretending like you do. Well, here, look, and don't, don't forget, too, these organizations share people, whether it's from GM office to GM office, whether it's player to player – if, if any of that was going on, you would know. Yeah, yeah. But sure. there's also like, there's also claims by you know Rashid Wallace saying, you know, he had an idea or he thought that this was happening, and he would kind of call out the referees when they would do it. So there is, there is some it's sort of. Yeah, but that's the thing. But uh, you know what? Go back and listen to that interview because the question is, what is he alleging? Did the did the referees hate Allen Iverson? With a passion. Yeah. But that's not David Stern or anybody directing that activity. Do you know what I mean? Like, and, and no different than in baseball. Certain players get better strike zones. Right. But we know all this. Right, right. Yeah, yeah um, for sure. So it's just, again, it's, it's, it's 
it's not sophisticated to take anecdotes that are real. We all agree that we all see these things, but mm-hmm. that's a different matter than saying it's orchestrated like worldwide, worldwide, worldwide wrestling federation. I mean, that's just, yeah. that's just not serious to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The WWF claim was uh, pretty crazy, but I mean, if you like, look, it's so hard because the way that they position it, they make it seem also believable. Right. And I guess that's know. the part of, of putting out good content and good media. Right. Um, I think it's interesting, no. but, but I mean, look, I, like, I, like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm not a Sixers fan like my son is, but I, but if I was going to pick a team, it would be the Sixers. Sure. They're the, that, they're the fifth biggest market in the country. They've been terrible forever. Like, yeah. so, <laughs> so using that logic, the, the, they, they're, they're really screwing this up. Yeah. Well, last year, the Raptors came back from 2-0 on the conference final against the MVP, Giannis. So I'm sure. Small you market. Know, the, small market, but small Giannis, market. MVP. The Giannis is a know. very, very large market of a guy. So. Mm-hmm. Wherever you put him, I'm sure he would succeed, and then the Raptors found their way to the finals. But to Zay's point earlier, we went, you know, through however many years of being a fan of a team, you know, being in the north in Canada, different country, different culture. You're almost kind of like the the weird one out, yeah. And you feel it sometimes, game game in and game out. You're like, what kind of calls are these dudes? Like, <laughs> like the guy wasn't even on the floor, and you're gonna call him for a personal. But um, I I had a question for you uh, specifically with regards to the actual betting because. One thing, and and this is, I guess, because I have I don't gamble on sports, but I have friends who are into that stuff, so I, I'm a little bit familiar with how it works. I'm not 100% clear, but I'm familiar enough to understand that the method that they were doing was, A, very, very untraceable to, to its maximum, and I could be wrong, but I feel like that's the case, and B, um, that this was a lot larger than anyone even has the capacity to think about because... Mm-hmm. The fact that they were betting on these lines and the yeah. what they can do with the garbage time and, and the scoring, like these are things that how can you trace stuff like that? So I want to hear from you. Do you think that, you know, this is really going on? I know they're not, you know, just for them to say make them win, make them lose is very hard to believe for me. But there are ways to manipulate the, the lines and the betting and to make money off that. Do you think that's, you know, still happening today? Well, let me first explain to your audience what you were talking about, which is that somebody like Batista, the reason he was one of the world's best movers, he was not a handicapper. He couldn't tell you who was winning tomorrow night any more than you and I can. His job was placing the bets for the professional gamblers who knew who was going to win tonight based on all their statistical analyses. And the trick to that is most sports books, whether it's onshore or off, won't take big bets. So maybe they'll take ten grand in Vegas, maybe fifty. Maybe you can get uh, fifty thousand or a hundred thousand offshore, but you can't get two million dollars down on the game. That just doesn't happen. But what if you want to bet two million on a game because you're fairly confident that it's going to happen? Well, what that requires is you need to get dozens of bets: five grand here, ten thousand there, fifteen thousand, as much as you can, all around the world. And importantly, it has to happen at the same time so that the lines don't move because sooner or later the computer algorithms between all the betting sites are going to realize, oh my gosh, $2 million just got put on the Raptors. Something's up with that game. So Batista's skill was having, they're called outs. He had so many outs around the world that he could pick up a phone or click a mouse and get that kind of money down quickly and no one would know what was, going to go, what was happening. So anyway, to answer your question, um, what Donaghy was doing, according to the pro gamblers, uh, was genius. Uh, his way of fixing the game was calling technically correct calls early in games. So that, because um, most people, when they were trying to research this years later, including the FBI, by the way, 
they were looking at the last few minutes of every game, uh, thinking, okay, well, that's when he had his bed in play, and that's when he would do what he had to do to make up the loss. And, of course, they didn't discover anything. Well, that was because, again, if you believe the pro gamblers who were doing the scandal, um, those game outcomes were being dictated early enough that by the time you got to that point in the game, he had already taken care of his bet. Um, so with regard to whether a regular referee could use garbage minutes uh, to – it's possible – but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's so hard to trace to me. It's it feels like such a genius idea. Well, here's the thing. This isn't the question you asked, but I think what is what is happening now, and I, I've been talking about this since fantasy came along. I think the more the easier and the more likely thing, if you're if you're a referee or even if you're a player, and you want to hustle a little bit, you can bet fantasy on anything nowadays. Oh yeah, and, yeah. And you know, and who's paying attention? to those last few minutes, whether it's extra free throws, possessions, turnovers. I mean, anything you, you can, you can essentially prop anything nowadays. Um, now granted it's not big money, but Hey, five grand here, 20 grand there. I mean, you could do it. No, yeah. whatever. No. Yeah. Yeah. You can even prop the duration of the national anthem. That's one of my yeah. favorites. <laughs> <laughs> um, but listen, with that being said, Sean, I just want to, uh, bring this all to an end. I think um, I'm speaking on behalf of you know us here at the Fadeaway, and assuming our listeners, because we know what our listeners are about, and we know that they're into the the whistleblower. There's a lot of interest around that, so I think that this will be a very enjoyable uh, interview. So I just want to say again, I know you mentioned it before, not to, but we got to do it. We're Canadian. We're gonna thank you again for coming <laughs> on the show. We appreciate it, and um, it was very insightful, very informative stuff. All right, well, listen, and I, people don't have to buy gaming the game. If they want the evidence, and I said this on the Whistleblower Podcast too, just go to my website, seanpatrickgriffin.net. All the basics are there. Um, I am. I don't like when this is treated like a he said, he said story. Um, you and I are either talking right now or we're not, and I'm not debating this 10 years from now. So uh, anyway, I, 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 this has been good. And by the way, whoever wrote these questions – very impressive. Much better than most of the media. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. I'll I'll keep that in I'll keep that in mind when I'm trying to slide into their uh, DMs to pick me up or something. Because <laughs> no one's gonna listen to a guy from Toronto. But I appreciate that. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, guys.